After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquilo, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, you blood, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because of the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it is, involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancreae because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. So <clears throat> I have a good friend who is a, which I guess is like quite a lot of people here. And uh, she became a Christian as a teenager. She's moved away from home many years. She's my age. And her parents are like totally appalled at her career choices going into Christian And she spent years sort of saying to people, please, will you pray for them? And occasionally, like, trying to send them an email saying, oh, I've heard this event is happening near where you live. Why don't you go to it? And then emailing her back and say, please stop talking to us about this. And she's just lived with that tension for, you know, 20 or more years. Anyway, she lives in a totally other part of the world now. <clears throat> One day last year, her mum was out on a daily walk in lockdown. Remember those? an hour a day, and uh, she came across some Christians having a socially distant service in the park. 
Well, then she started walking past that way on her daily walk every Sunday. And she began talking to the people and she got to know them. And now she goes to church normally every week and we think she's become a Christian. Better than that, we, my friend then found out this story because uh, even though it's a part of the country she's not lived in for 20 years, the vicar of that church is a friend of hers from when she was studying university, who's weirdly ended, living up, ended up living there near her parents. Now that seems totally random. Not her plan. There was no strategy there. Let's get so-and-so's mum to become a Christian by us moving to this place that we don't really want to go and hoping that she walks past in a park. I mean, it wasn't written in anybody's strategy document. And yet, that is the way the kingdom goes forward nearly all the time. God does things that we were never expecting. Now this bit of Acts, the story of the first church, is the story of how the message of uh, this section is about how the message of Jesus goes to what we might call a pagan world. That is a world with non-Jewish beliefs. And we've seen lots of things about what happens when the gospel, the message about Jesus and the world, come together. Uh, Evil is exposed Trouble is brought onto Christians as they open the Bible gently with people. The weak and the poor are attracted, but powerful people don't like it. They, they see it as a threat. And last week we saw Paul actually, what he said in a talk to some of these people, uh, some people who have this some sense that God is there. He basically said to them, yes, you're right, God is there. There is a creator and there is a father. And now that Jesus is risen from the dead... You need to trust in him if you really think that. There's no excuse anymore. He was pretty, you know, in their faces. Well, this is the last section of that particularly what we call missionary journey of Paul before he turns to his base in Antioch. And you'll have noticed when I was telling it to the kids, it seems almost like a sort of ragbag collection of stories to finish the, you know, just get the historical record right. You know, he ended up here and he went here, here and here first. But in each person, each situation is showing us something about how Jesus continues to get the message to the world who doesn't know him. And Jesus is continuing to do that now. I mean, it is a good question, isn't it? How are a small group of believers, no one thinks are very important, that's us by the way, (laughs) how are people like that going to lead this quiet revolution as Jesus continues to work through them. And that's what this section of Acts is all about. I was discussing it with my wife earlier in the week and she was like, oh, so basically what this bit is about is that random stuff happens, but it's all actually Jesus continuing his work, which is an excellent summary. Thank you to my wife for that. So if you want to switch off now and go to sleep, you've had the best summary I could give you. Here's the first thing that we see alive to guidance, Priscilla and Aquila. Some things, it appears, never change. A feature of Paul's world, like ours, was people having to leave where they live because of racism and discrimination and persecution. That's what had happened to this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. They were two refugees of an anti-Semitic purge in Rome. And so they ended up in Corinth. They are tent makers. And so when Paul bumps into them, he's skint. 
He's been thrown out of Thessalonica at a quick brief thing in Athens, but there's no church there. So he's arrived in Corinth with no money. So he's like, oh, great. <laughs> We're all Christians. We all make tents. Can we work together? And then Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia, and I think they bring a gift of money, we discover elsewhere in the New Testament, so Paul can continue preaching and they pay. But in the meantime, he's skint and he makes tents with them. Now, there's a definite romanticising about tent making. It's come because of this passage into sort of Christian jargon that people will describe when someone goes somewhere as a missionary, but they have to work to make money alongside their missionary work. They say, oh, they're tent making. Uh, Christians are wild for that type of thing, aren't they? Like... (laughs) weird jargon Uh, but it's sort of romanticized I don't think tent making was probably like loads of fun it meant you know stripping animal hides of animals and curing them I mean have you ever been in a place where they're curing leather it stinks and then stretching them to make tents so Paul who by the way is a Roman citizen so couldn't have been thrown out of Rome if he was there he joins with these two refugees in this tough smelly work this great apostle it is in no way beneath him in fact they're doing him a favor by letting him join the business but it turns out when we get to the end of uh, the passage that they weren't just making tents for that time in verse 18 paul leaves corinth and he takes these two with him to ephesus now that's a totally different part of the world it's in turkey so these poor people they've been all over the place And it's a very cosmopolitan city, again, not at all open to Judaism. And after a quick visit to the synagogue, he leaves them there. He's like, guys, come with me to Ephesus. Great, I've always wanted to see Turkey. Oh, actually, I'm going back to Syria now, goodbye. Purposilla and Aquila are left there. But it turns out, by the end of the chapter, that they are doing the work we might have expected Paul to do. A Jew called Apollos turns up, and he's very good at reasoning in the synagogue, but he just hasn't quite become a Christian yet. And so, in verse 26, Priscilla and Aquila hear him, they invite him to their home, they explain to him the way of God, and then they become a sending church, and they send him back to Corinth. We'll come back to Apollos in a minute. Now, what is happening here? Well, I think it's this. Nobody wrote down a plan that a terrible persecution of an ethnic minority should happen so that the gospel could spread. Paul did not plan to run out of money, to have to make tents for a while. He preferred to be preaching. That's what he did as soon as he could afford it. But what that whole situation did, them being persecuted, him having no money, it led to him being able to train these two people They're having to move around. They're born in Pontus, which is Greece. They're chucked out of Rome. They're back in Corinth for a while. They end up in Turkey. But do you notice these refugees? They're not charity cases. Paul's not like, oh, poor people, I must do something to help them. He views them as partners. And in the end, they end up doing the work in Ephesus that, for whatever reason, he doesn't feel able to do. They become replacement Paul's. Now, this has a very direct application to our own church family. There are people here who have had to flee their countries because of terrible rulers. And we are against that. It is wrong. We should fight for it not to happen. But we don't view people like that in this church as charity cases. 
course we want to do everything we can to help them in their distress. But what our hope and prayer for, for anybody who arrives here like that, is that we grow to be partners, working together. That the evil that forced you to be here can be redeemed, that we partner together to do something amazing for God. And I don't consider ourselves to be Paul. You know, we're Paul and we're going to train you and then take you somewhere. But I hope that investing in each other means that if you're in that situation, that someday you'll be brought to do some work for God that we could never have dreamed of being involved in until this whole situation unfolded that none of us planned. I am not saying in that typical British way, oh well, look on the bright side. We don't say that to people who've been chased out of their own countries. There is no bright side of that. But we want to be alive to guidance. We learn that all Christians that God brings are partners, even those who didn't choose to be here. And sometimes British people, maybe it's because of the empire, you know, which finished like over a hundred years ago. But even still, sometimes British people are a bit funny about that, treating people from other cultures as partners rather than people who can, you know, receive our help. But that wasn't Paul's approach. There's a wider application here, though. It may not be through persecution, but maybe in life, you have ended up not where you planned to be. Maybe you're here today and you're very sad about where you've ended up, or you're very poor because something's gone wrong. I want to encourage you, no matter how bad it is, to trust that God is up to something. There is some way for you to do something for God, to learn something about God. Oh, that is always what he is doing. That is always what he is up to. Uh, right back at the beginning, when I first started in uh, Christian ministry work, working for Christian organisations, through very bad advice by people who later turned out to be quite untrustworthy, I ended up in a job in which I was pretty miserable. And I remember in the middle of that, I was basically like looking for a way out, trying to leave. A friend from my home church said to me, I don't think you should leave because you need to consider that God is getting you ready for something that's coming later. At the time, I was furious with that advice. I was like, the advice I wanted was, I'll pray for the Lord to find you a new job. Thanks. I was annoyed. But he was right. I needed to be alive to what is God teaching. Things I learned there are things I probably wouldn't have learned any other way, and I still need now. In this story, we have no comment at all on Priscilla and Aquila's feelings. I guess they were pretty mixed. Miserable to be pushed out of their home, felt abandoned. Who knows? Luke just records the facts that God had them where he wanted them to help in his mission, and they learned that, and they went on and played their own role, which I think is him saying, how you're feeling, God cares about that, and he cares for you, but he's got something bigger going on you can always join in with. Those are the facts. Uh, we have a mission partner from our church who ended up uh, studying in a field that they actually in Liverpool that they actually didn't want to continue in. <laughs> they applied to do a course and they didn't really want to continue in that course. They offered the place, but like, I don't know what else to do, so I'll do the course. And ended up here, 
sort of like, oh, I just don't really know what to do with my life. And through coming to our church, met the person, not through anyone's arrangement, just bumped into him, one of those coffee chats, to the person who has now directed her into incredibly difficult but amazing ministry. And I think probably we could all tell millions of those stories. That's the history of the church, the history of the Christian life. That's the way it works out. It is important to try and have a strategy so you don't waste the gift that God gives you. But the thing that you discover is God's just always doing stuff, no matter what you aim for. And the call is to be alive to that, to be awake to that, to look round and say, what might he be doing? Even though it wasn't my plan, you know, to get expelled from Rome. People are in difficult situations, much more difficult than the one I've just described that happened to me. But Priscilla and Aquila were in a terrible situation. And the call was still to partner with God and God's people. Accept what you can learn. Bend your effort to building God's church, partnering with God's people. Who knows what will happen through this series of unfortunate events? It's in those moments that Christians rely on each other and work together and the church goes forward. So if you're stuck somewhere you don't want to be, it's a chance to partner, to learn, to serve God in some way you never would have expected. Second thing that we see, open to perseverance, Paul's strange vision. In the letters that you get later on in the Bible from these churches that Paul started, that he wrote to them. It's interesting. Thessalonica, he stayed for three weeks. He didn't do much valuable ministry there and then he had to be sort of removed by the Christians there because people were going to kill him. Silas and Timothy obviously did a great job because if you read the letter to the Thessalonian churches, they are great. You would want to go there. If you landed in Thessalonica, you'd be like, yeah, I'll phone up the church. They are great stuff. Here we find that God had a direct word from God to persevere in Corinth for 18 months. Well, if you were to read Paul's letters to the church in Corinth later, you'd have thought a pretty wasted 18 months. It's fair to say you wouldn't have liked that church unless you are into, I don't know, weird sexual relationships and a lot of arguing and chaos. And I guess some people are into that, but not most Christians who are looking for a church. Thessalonica, where Paul hardly did anything, became the model Christian church, and Corinth, where he was told by God to persevere, was the exact opposite. And yet, God allowed Paul to be chased out of Thessalonica after three weeks, and told to stay in Corinth for 18 months. Corinth was so hard, Paul had to be told to persevere. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I think... I'm tempted always to think when this is hard, it must be God's guidance to not do it anymore. I feel tired and I'm not getting much back. I mean, in Corinth, it was pretty bad, wasn't it? Never mind the chaos we later discover unfolding in the churches. He had to give this chilling warning to the, to the synagogue there, your blood be on their own heads. I mean, it's not anti-Semitism, because he's really telling people not to be violent. He's saying, we don't need to be violent to people. God will sort them out. But he's thrown out of the synagogue and has to give this threat. God is going to judge you. 
And then he sets up next door. They can't imagine what that street must have been like. You know, was it constant sort of shouting over the wall at each other? I don't know. And the leader of the synagogue becomes a Christian. But Paul has to see the vast majority of his own people and the people Priscilla and Aquila, who are also Jewish, would most have expected to help them and receive their message, actually hated them. But God says, keep going. Now, sometimes you have to stop, and it takes wisdom to discern. But the history of the church is this, that useful things are usually done through Christians persevering. What we call the mission field, that is, people going to other places in the world to tell people about Jesus, any story you read about that will involve people persevering without stopping. Now, we're very pro-short-term mission in this church, people going to help missionaries in a short-term way. But the reason we go really is to learn. The work is done by the people willing to dig in and stay. But that probably applies in normal life too. If you want your life to make an impact for Jesus, you are more likely to do it if you settle down somewhere and do it. And don't judge if you're in the right place by how easy it is. Now, usually that's true. I have no words for the Lord, from the Lord or specific guidance for anyone, okay? Just making that totally clear. I claim no authority for that. But maybe you'd love to live in a nicer house, but it might be better for your street if you stay where you are. That's usually true. Maybe you would love a different job, but the colleagues you currently work with are more likely to know God if you stay. Maybe you'd love to jump around place to place in the country and the world for years to improve your career. You might have more impact if you persevere in one place. I have no direct words. Opportunities change. But that seems to be the pattern that people often make a difference. So I'm just saying that as a might be. In this fairness, Paul only stays here 18 months. So I don't know. But the thing I would say is, when things are hard, don't read that spiritually that you should stop. It's usually best to persevere. And if you're really unsure, ask for wisdom from God. Seek help from the Christians around you. The truth is this. Generally, works of God are done by people sticking with things. And that's important for us to remember in our, you know, I fancy a change type culture. And... Paul was told to stick, even though Corinth was not a great place of success. So we don't judge whether we should stick with it based on the results that we can see. Here's the third thing we can see. Observing stupidity, the religious leaders. I do realise that for lots of people here, coming to church is like stepping into another world that you briefly visit on Sunday morning and maybe a weeknight evening. And the rest of your life, you step out into what feels like the real world. I talk all about spreading the gospel and living for Jesus and God's work. But you're just living in much bigger, more powerful institutions than the church. And if you think about that, you might get really depressed. All the people with power and money 
and buildings, they don't want the gospel to go out. And in fact, the people who are against the gospel seem really good at manipulating people in power to be against the church. It's pretty depressing, isn't it? Well, poor old Paul, here he has these two places of worship beside each other, the synagogue and the house church. And as we have seen, religious people never liked the gospel. And Paul, after some time, well, the synagogue tried to get him shut down by involving the government. Well, it turns out, surprise, surprise, in verse 14, the government of the time, a guy called Gallio, they aren't much interested in religious truth. And so they told the Jewish people to get lost. And then, I mean, it's almost comic if it wasn't so grim. I guess the people of Corinth just got really fed up of all these religious groups arguing with each other. So when the Jews were at court expecting their case to be heard, Gallio said, I, we don't care. And then a riot started because they all wanted to beat up this guy Sosthenes, the, the leader of the synagogue. I guess they were like, will you please just shut up about your religious arguments? Let's kick his head in. And a riot happened. Now, I think there's a warning here for any faith group thinking that getting into bed, expecting the state to back you up and take against people who disagree with you, be warned, the state will turn and bite you in the end. That warning is there throughout Acts about something that these days has become quite common, the church trying to get the state to back them up, to suppress godless people and heretical views and immoral behaviour. I don't think that's the direct application of this passage because I don't think Luke could have ever imagined Christians being so stupid. But here's a warning anyway. We don't try and get the government to do our work. But this farcical situation is there to show Christians who live in these huge systems, which is all of us, which are not sympathetic and often used against us. And what we feel like is, I'm just the little person trying to share the gospel or live with integrity plodding on with perseverance and all the powerful people are against me this is just like well here's an example where that all went wrong and actually the person who was against them ended up getting beaten up i mean god will bring people their foolish rejection of him that way in the end don't let it put you off so if you are the christian union member in trouble with the student union or the nurse under pressure from the nhs or just in life pressure to pipe down be quiet you're just a minority It's normal. There may have been moments where the church or powerful people were on the same side, but that's not usual. This is the story. Powerful people are against you, but a farce will unfold in the end. All their posturing, we are powerful. That is not the real story. It's actually true, isn't it? I don't know. Some people in our church are, I think, in situations where they have to deal with people with quite a lot of power all the time. I imagine that what you find when you have to deal with them is that in the truth, they're always just oversized children. I mean, isn't that the case? They all behave like children, no matter how much power they've got. They present this impressive front, but you get involved. It always unfolds as a farce in the end because the people just behave like kids. The real story is the one Luke is telling of how refugees and a random preacher start a revolution that has grown despite all the opposition from that day to this. That the marginal people who never made any of the newspapers, God was with them as they reasoned and taught and were thrown out of places. And Gallio, I mean, I think find things like this really interesting. 
Who of us, if we hadn't read about him in Acts 18, would have heard of Gallio? None of us. Yet at the time, he was like the big cheese. He's only remembered in history now why? Because he's tangentially connected to some Christians. God laughs at these powerful people. And he puts these stories in to say, don't let them with all their power stop you doing the quiet looking insignificant but real thing of joining in with what Jesus is doing. Quiet service and gentle witness is actually the only lasting show in town. And this story is here to say, don't be intimidated out of your gracious perseverance by powerful people and their stupid games. Get on with it. There, wherever those people in power are, and you're joining in with the real story. Here's the last thing we see. Surprised by God and Apollos. I talked about my friend and the random service in the park and her mum and the vicar she happened to know. That seemingly random way is the way the kingdom goes forward nearly everywhere all the time. Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and that is quite mysterious in this story. I think if you'd been Paul's, I don't know, coach or mentor, you would have told him off at this point. The synagogue there actually seemed to want to listen to him. And he's like, nope, nope, sorry, I've got to go. Leaves these two trainees in this city they don't know. What are they supposed to do? They don't have Paul's education or intellect. Well, another Jewish person from Egypt, Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He's not even really a Christian yet. He's only heard of John the Baptist, not Jesus properly. He's totally convinced that Jesus is real, but has not actually become a Christian yet. But he suddenly slips into the gap left by Paul and starts teaching in the synagogue. And Priscilla and Aquila, remember, they're just common tent makers who have been left in Ephesus, lead him to true faith in the Lord. And the end of the story is the closing of the circle. They send him to Achaia, where Corinth is, to go and reason with the Jewish synagogue there. And it seems that Apollos did what Paul failed to do and persuaded the Jews in Corinth to become Christians. Now, who knows why Paul didn't stay in Ephesus? I don't know. But God provided Priscilla and Aquila, unlikely candidates to serve God in that place, to explain the scriptures and the learned person who was ready to learn who is a more effective servant of God than Paul, and he got that person back to Corinth where Paul had faced all this resistance. It's just like, isn't it, the minister, my friend, who befriended and encouraged her parents for a year, and they were so close, and it was never in her head, oh, this person I'm at university with, I'll invest in them, because someday they might move to that place where my parents live, and my mum might come across them in a park. I mean, it was never in her head, and yet that is what God does. We are rethinking how we express our church. Like, I don't love these words, but vision and values and strategy at the moment. We're thinking all of that through. And it's right to do that, because you need to look at the resources you've got and say, how do we use them well? We're not just going to spend them willy-nilly, spray them everywhere. So it's right to do that. But I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and uh, showing him and saying, this is what we're thinking of doing. And he was like, this is all fine. But you need to realise, whatever you write on that piece of paper, God will do what he wants. Whatever you write down that you think is going to happen, 
God will do what God's going to do. And then I began to think, like, this really is true. The people who've become Christians through our church in the last little while, it wasn't that we were like, oh, here's our strategy. They meet someone at this event, and then they come and explore on this course, and then they become a Christian. It's much more random than that. And that's probably your story too. And that is what Luke wants us to wake up to today. I hope it encourages you, whatever you're dealing with, no unfortunate circumstance is wasted. There is always a way to become or grow or join in with God's mission as a Christian. And if that's not super encouraging to you, maybe it isn't, I think it's probably because we're not as excited as Luke by God's mission always going forward. The idea of always having that to join in with doesn't really fire us up. But I'm not here to tell you off about that. I'm just here to say, if you change your heart to care about what God cares about, you will find there's always reason to be encouraged. In the worst of circumstances, there's always a place to see that God's at work. There's a fountain of joy if you care about the things that God cares about because he never stops working towards those things. Maybe today the weight of circumstances is pressing down on you so you've forgotten to look at things that way. And Act says, well, look at it from God's point of view. Get alive to what he might be doing. Join in. That's the path to not being discouraged.